imaginary. Hello, darling. Um, Ross Sutherland here. As you may already know, in addition to the monthly main feed release on Imaginary Advice, I now also make a monthly bonus podcast, which is usually um, for patron supporters only. However, uh, this month, as a one-off, I've decided to release an episode of my bonus podcast right here on the main feed. So, uh, what is it? What is this uh, bonus podcast? Well, the bonus series is called Imaginary Reprise. Each episode is approximately an hour-long conversation with a special guest talking about writing, creativity, storytelling. On each episode, we use an old story from Imaginary Advice as the starting point for our conversation, and then things move on from there. Uh, Every single episode of Imaginary Reprise has been um, an absolute joy to make. I've learned so much about the creative process through these conversations, through hearing about my guests' process, and also through the process of forcing myself to try and articulate what I do. Uh, yeah, the whole thing has been... Uh, it's been a bit of a revelation to me. So, uh, yeah, I thought I'd share one with you. Of course... I'm using this. This is a trick. It's a trap, right? I'm using this to, to, to try and lure some more of you to sign up to my Patreon where you get access to the entire back catalogue. You know, like, that is my ploy, all right? Uh, other episodes in the feed include conversations with Helen Zaltzman of the Illusionist podcast. Also, Martin Zoltz-Dostwick from the Song by Song podcast, co-creator of Neutrino Watch, stand-up comic and Doctor Who writer Angus Dunnican. Most recently, I put up an episode with uh, the journalist and wife, Lizzie Denning, my wife to be precise. Lizzie and I broke down the Imaginary Vice episode set behind the scenes of the film Four Weddings and a Funeral. So there's, there's all that and more to listen and find out how it works go to patreon.com forward slash ross g sutherland that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash ross g sutherland okay on now to this particular episode which is a conversation with author and podcaster tim clare tim hosts the incredible writing podcast death of a thousand cuts he is also the author of a brand new book non-fiction book on anxiety called coward why we get anxious and what we can do about it it's in shops right now in this episode here me and tim are talking about the imaginary advice episode seinfeld written as an acronym s-e-i-n-f-e-l-d if you haven't heard that episode before fear not I have literally reposted it to the top of the imaginary advice feed right now. I did it this morning. So if you need to, you can pause here, go have a listen, and then return when you're ready. Okay, this is far, far too much intro. I, I, I've comp- it's, it's, 
it's not actually that complicated. This is this is an episode from a bonus feed, which is actually about an old episode from the real feed. But now I've moved it from the bonus feed to the real feed. And also the old episode that I was talking about, also from lower in the feed up to the new point in the new feed. Jesus Christ. Look, just listen to this episode. Go listen to Seinfeld if, if, if you like. You don't have to do anything that I say. I'm just a voice in your ear. But if, if you're interested, go listen to Seinfeld. Come back and then listen to this discussion with me and Tim. Okay. Uh, let's go. We need to get started. Um, I hope you like this little peek behind the paywall. Uh, let's go. Um, before we talk about um, the episode, Tim, I thought, can we can we talk a little bit about uh, sort of like our back history? Because obviously, sure. like you've been on the show, you've been on the main feed sort of tw- twice. You were on it many years ago on a, I've written it down here, uh, episode 38, Scooby-Doo. talking about Scooby-Doo. Yeah, talking about H.P. Lovecraft and nihilism and depression. And then, uh, and then I read a poem about Scooby-Doo. And then you were on again 21 months later on uh episode 59 when you read that um that wonderful short story uh about a family who loses their uh their dad to a private religion of worshiping the the, the big scarecrow yeah which I, I absolutely loved uh i like really love doing the sound design for that like too the, the the scarecrow thing is so dumb because i'm pretty sure i heard ages ago that there was like a that there was a story by the sort of fantasy science fiction writer i've got his books here so if in case i can't remember him he wrote the um chronicles of amber roger zelazny that he wrote a book one of his books came from like a pun he thought of it genuinely came from a pun and then he built a serious book that's about like a planet where colonists crash on it and they out of the spaceship the kind of like surviving colonists built like invent themselves reinvent themselves as the hindu pantheon of gods using like the powers from their ship and populate the planet but exist on it as the as like brahma and vishnu and buddha and all this but then there's a really like dumb pun in it that is the whole world has to exist for just to have this one incredibly bad bit and I feel like that Scarecrow episode genuinely probably came from me thinking about the term big farmer. <laughs> and and then and then like going, what if it, what if it was what a if big farmer was just a big farmer? <laughs> and then I'm imagining a big scarecrow. And then and then just like forgetting why I'd originally thought of it. And then you're like and and then just kind of walk, going with that, and I, I think you sort of, I, it's, I think the reason writers get so defensive when someone asks where do you get your ideas from, is because it's like, it's often a really dumb, unflattering. <laughs> it's like I, I was like I was just driving in my car, like singing nonsense to myself. I or I, you know, and. And I and and then something amused me, and then I've tried to dress it up in post to to seem like an act of 
intellectual elan. And actually, it it's it's just it's just sort of psychic nose picking, really. And then I've got this kind of bogey on the end of my finger, and I've got to think of something to do with it. And I'm like, I'll make it into art. I think. I mean, yeah. I I I, I and it does make me wonder. Like, I've got that book. There's like a blood axe book of. Um, poets talking about where they get their inspiration from. And it's such a, it's such bollocks. The entire book is always, because there's always at this, in every single one of those little mini essays, uh, there's still like this black box that they won't, they're not willing to open in terms of where they get their ideas from. And it's just like, things just come to me. But no, I think you're absolutely right. Like that, that daftness. But that also makes me think, man, about, that is really relevant, I think, to, this episode that we're going to talk about today, um, which is episode 45, Seinfeld, or I, I should, maybe to, to pronounce it properly, I should call it S-E-I-N-F-E-L-D. Can I just check, for, the, for it, does that mean, because it's not mentioned in the episode as far as I remember. No, it's not. Uh, it, do you have headcanon for what that for what Seinfeld is an actor? Yeah, okay. I, I, not, at the, not at the time <laughs> of writing, but before talking to you today, Tim. I did have a little bit of a think about that uh, because, you know, like it, like the world is full of these kind of like tortured backronyms invented by like technologists. Okay. So I don't even think it needs to be that great in order for it to kind of work. But my guess would be synthetic entertainment, integrated neural field, electric Larry David. <laughs> what a closer. What? What a hairpin that that acro- few acronyms have that that kind of vault fast midway. I love it. This idea of this very very subtle turning point between a daft joke or a pun and something which kind of like presents itself as kind of like arcane knowledge is uh, I I I I think that's something that uh that this whole piece riffs on quite a lot right and i'm almost certain that a lot of the sort of like the the thinking that went into this episode actually comes from conversations i've had with you because i'm i'm sure that we have spoken about this like quite a lot and in fact there is a line in this story which i am pretty sure i have ripped off from I, I, it might have been something that you just said once. I, I, I thought maybe it appeared in like one of the the sort of like the spoken word uh, theatre shows that you and I had kind of collaborated on. But I, I was never able to really like track down where it came from, which is basically the um, the 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 aha to ha ha bit about about the difference between a like uh, uh, between like a poem and a joke, in that they are both about. <sighs> connecting together two thoughts that traditionally uh, uh, like, uh, like are, are, are unconnected. It's like drawing a kind of like a, a, a path, a neural pathway between two ideas uh, to, to sort of like connect them in some way. But depending on the genre uh, that you're working in, uh, that can either like trigger a kind of like a humor response or it can basically be some kind of Zen Cohen. Yeah, I think I can remember. I mean, I don't think I have uh, phrased it as articulately as that. I imagine I kind of did lots of talking around the subject. But the example that I kind of always come back to 
is, and this is, a, I should say, this is a pet theory rather than an established fact. But there's a, like one of the one of the more famous Zen Cohens, or like, but but enough in, inside baseball that knowing it is is like it's not like one hand clapping. It's a little bit more, uh, it's a li- little bit more boutique. <laughs> is uh, uh, so there was a um a, a monk in I think I want to say 16th century Japan called Joshu Jushin, and the Cohen goes a monk asked Joshu, "Does a dog have Buddha nature?" Joshu replied, "Mu." Now "mu" being a prefix in Japanese that means is the equivalent of "un," right? But like it like as in um unknown, right? But like would be like "mu" as in not have. So not it's have, a, like nothing. a negation that you can apply to the beginning. So like mushin, if like shin is soul, mm-hmm. mushin is like no soul or empty soul or something like that. Right. So so the idea is, you know, like it doesn't mean anything. He's asked, does a dog have Buddha nature? And he says, it, it, some people talk about it as if he's saying, unask the question. So, mm. and it's a really profound and like people in the Rinzai pantheon will kind of like uh, of zen will sit down and meditate on what could the possibly be the meaning of this koan will sit down and think about it and then after hours of meditation you go back and you see the zen master and they ask you what have you what what's your thoughts on the koan and maybe you say what you think it means or you might do some you might act you might act in some way you might give some cryptic response you might clap you might say something there's a really funny story by jack cornfield where he was pondering a zen cohen and he just got more and more pissed off and everything he he kept going to see this zen master and every time the guy would ring the bell and say what do you think the answer is and then and he'd say and the guy would go not right and he got really angry and he went in and he lost his temper and he just he just got his fist and he he slammed his fist down on the candle on the desk and flattened it and went fuck you roshi <laughs> and walked out and as he walked out he heard the bell ring and the guy say not correct <laughs> <laughs> um and and I love that but like the idea is that it's 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 supposed to break down the rational mind and eventually you have this breakthrough and then simply uh you know a lot of the 50s and 60s uh commentators on zen when american gi's were bringing it back to the west from japan were going oh you know just from how you walk into the room they'll be able to tell that you've got it it's some kind of informal non-intellectual knowing so the reason I bring this up is that it, this was not a koan that originally that originates in Japanese. It originates in Chinese, in which uh, Joshu is known as Chao Chu, and the term Mu is translated from the Chinese Wu. So then it's like a monk asked Chao Chu, "Does a dog have Buddha nature?" Chao Chu replied, "Wu," which kind of sounds like someone saying "woof." Mm, yeah. Right. Right. So yeah. He, on that level, it's a gag. He might just be doing an impression of a dog to say, "What a stupid, <laughs> yeah." Like, why are you asking me dumb questions about like is a dog that like that's not that's not what we're here to do. Like, mm. like, like we're not here to like pick up. So it might be the equivalent of why did the chicken cross the road? Yeah, but taken through various iterations, becomes this profound thing because it it doesn't make sense. And then when you translate it, yeah. 
It doesn't even work as a pun. And so now people are going, what could he have possibly meant? And then they're sitting down for ages until their minds break yeah. when there is nothing to get. It's just like a woolly jumper, right? Like, it, 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 you know, it, it doesn't mean anything. And so that's that's <laughs> the, that's a very long way of saying that's the, the, the thing I come back to is that it, it, the genre of joke or profound gnomic utterance is more in the kind of eye of the beholder. And it depends what set of glasses you the frame that you start applying to make yeah. sense of it. And that man, yeah, I, and I think that, like, like the, the complexity of that, I think is like, I, I find absolutely fascinating. And this is, yeah, and then, so this is something that I think, and I'll kind of loop back to sort of explain a little bit more of the actual story of this Seinfeld episode in a, in, in, in a couple of minutes. But just, it's, I think it's kind of nice up top to talk about this stuff because it's essentially a story about you know, like me uh, um, talking with a, uh, a, a, a stand-up, let's just refer to them as a, as a stand-up, and questioning about where being a stand-up ends and where being a poet begins and, and where that kind of like crossover is. And yeah, and I do think that that's in the context of this, uh, th- th- this story, it, it's about how both stand-up and poetry are full of these error statements. Uh, and it just comes down to the context within these error statements and how they're placed, which changes how we react to them. Like in a three-point gag in a comedy show, like uh, someone, let's, to, just to give a three-point gag, it's like, oh, uh, um, Scotland is famous for many things. Our, 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 our rural heritage, our sense of humour, and not forgetting Fat Bastard from the Austin Powers films. All right, so that's not good, but the idea is you know I'm going to say something stupid on the third point of the list. You're waiting for me to say the stupid thing, and then I, and I, and then I say it, and, like, and that is meant to release the, the tension of it, right? And because we're familiar with the form in advance, we, you know I'm going to say something stupid, and so you're waiting for it. You don't know exactly the stupid thing I'm going to say, but then I'm going to say it. But then that same kind of structure within a poem, it just kind of changes the way that we, we treat the ambiguity. You know, if I was to say a golf ball is a promise, you know, like, you, you, know you, you can ruminate on what that could possibly mean. And, you know, like, it doesn't have all the information in the, in, in, in the statement itself. Um, uh, but for that to be successful as a joke, like the, the social contract has to be quicker. You have to immediately be able to sort of like recognize like the, 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 the implicit like subtext message. What I'm not saying uh, in, in, in that statement, a golf ball is a promise in order to find it kind of like funny. But we, so yeah, we, we treat those two things differently. If it's a poem, we entitle ourselves to think about a uh, one of those error messages for a long, long time. In, uh, uh, in, in, in comedy, we have to sort of like evaluate that error message very, very quickly. And whether or not we laugh at it is something that we're expected to do straight away, right? If, uh, if someone tells you a joke and then you have to think about it for like three years and then you suddenly go, Oh, I get it now, <laughs> right? Like you, you might still say that is a problem with that joke, right? Like the joke is kind of like like failed in some way by the fact that it took three years. I don't years. know. No, I don't agree, Ross. <laughs> I, I know, I understand the rhetorical point you're making, but it's just made me think 
of like when I was worked in a pub and um, when I worked in a pub and there was a guy came in, this guy who was like clearly not very well. He was like, he had like a, a transistor radio that he was like listening to very closely and turning it back and forth. And he was sometimes talking to himself. And there was a regular who would come in once a day, like in a red and black leather, um, uh, 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 motorcyclist leathers. And he would take his helmet off, order one pint of Carling, drink it standing at the bar and then walk out. And he was, you know, very nice. But that was his daily routine. right? And he came in and he saw this guy and he said, can I buy you a drink? And the guy ordered a pint and he gave him the drink and the guy went thank you you're a gentleman and a scholar and the guy went but i'm not an acrobat Uh, and 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 i didn't understand that comment and then about two years later i was swimming lengths in portishead leisure center and i was like oh he was referencing the pink panther theme tune which goes here he is the pink panther the rinky dink panther did you ever see a panther that's pink? You'll see that he's a groovy cat. Well, he's a gentleman, a scholar. He's an acrobat. And I was like, what a deep cut. And for no audience at all. And I, swimming lengths, I laughed. And I was like, wow, that's a, like a good, that was like a commitment to the bit. Mm. Like that was a good, so I take your point exactly. But like sometimes, sometimes the kind of Easter egg jokes are the ones that make me laugh the hardest. Uh, yeah, I like it, man. I mean, and all of this stuff, the reason that we're having this conversation where we're uh, skipping around the subject of author intentionality is because like the the character speaking at the heart of the Seinfeld story is someone who has no intentionality, right? Which is why I, you know, like we can, you know, like flip the context on, you know, like how their writing can is, should be perceived. Uh, yeah. Can I... Can I, Ross, take you, like, I suppose maybe as a starting point, what would be really good is if you, uh, have you got, uh, I'd just be interested, I'm going to do the thing that I said people hate, but like, do you, can you think about the genesis of, like, when you started Mm. writing this, what you were, what you were trying to do with it, how you came up with it? Yeah, let's, let's start at the beginning. I think uh, for me, um, there's sort of, sort of two areas I maybe should talk about here. One is that like I wrote this uh, um, about five years after I finished a research master's in, uh, let's say it's in uh, electronic poetry, but that's a slightly vague term. Really what I was doing is I was interested in computer programs that were producing poetry. And as part of my research, I tried to create my own version of doing that. Uh, and the method that I used was to take these um, automated internet translation sites like Babelfish. This is actually pre-Google Translate because uh, Google Translate works in a completely different way. Uh, that's just based on uh, brute force aggregates. You know, if someone said this kind of sentence in French previously, they'll basically just find a previous version of a translation and go like, well, it probably means this. Um, it's not actually doing any cognition at all, but the, the, the other forms of translation like Babelfish, they were actually trying to break down, uh, the sentence and translate it into, uh, uh, into another language, uh, um, using a sort of like an algorithmic system, which is loosely based on Chomskyan 
ideas of deep grammar. And it's very, very complicated linguistic stuff. And of course, it's like part of it is fundamentally flawed. These translation programs, they do not work. Like it is impossible to uh, to translate between two languages without some kind of like human processing, particularly once you're looking at poetic language. Uh, so I was kind of intentionally using these translation systems in a way that they weren't supposed to be used. I was putting poems into them, translate this poem by, uh, you know, by Sylvia Plath into German, then back into English, then into Polish, then back into English, then into Korean. And every single time I'm kind of pruning it and changing it, but I'm letting the kind of uh, the computer orientated protocols of uh, these translation systems uh, influence these translations and kind of warp them until they still have some kind of like weird essence, some sort of like wireframe skeleton of the original poem beneath. But everything has just been so radically changed and mutated through this huge game of telephone that they sort of become sort of new things. So that was like my creative project, but lots of the sort of like the critical research I was doing around it was about the fact that automated translation was a philosopher's stone. And it, like it fundamentally did not work, but yet we were compelled to use it because we needed it so badly. You know, like the world needs to talk to it, to each other, you know, like, uh, uh, and you know, stuff like 75%, uh, 75% of all in-house communication within the EU was done by robots just because there was so much communication going on. I mean, not important documents. They would have like human translators involved in them, but just the day-to-day -day, what's classed as like dirty communication, uh, like required uh, uh, um, just very, very fast automation. And so I was just, I got obsessed with this idea of like how much this stuff was just in the water supply already and how necessary it was, but just how impossible it was to use uh, figurative language to use, you know, like uh, what often gets classed as like parasitic language, where like the thing we're, we're saying is not the thing that we mean, which is such a critical part, not only of like art, but of just diplomacy. Uh, and, you know, like, I, I, and so like a lot of my thinking was around that. And so I was, I was interested in what makes a poem. And that's where my whole thing about poems tend to have you know, like error messages cooked into them. A metaphor is an error message. It is saying one thing is another thing. It's not saying a thing is like a thing. It says a thing is a thing. And we know that that is a lie because we are familiar with the world. And so we treat it as a comparison, but that's, that's a complicated thing, right? And so I was interested in that and how error messages and poetry like drive us forward. And I was also interested in this, 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 this growing sea change of writing becoming automated and interested in what that meant for my future as a writer. So all that stuff's like in my head, I think it's been sort of like knocking about for a while. And I finished my, my M res, my kind of like my thesis on this subject. And I'd sort of, um, I, I was initially going to convert it to a PhD, but due to a, a an actual paperwork error, uh, my university, didn't return the correct paperwork for my grant application to continue and convert to a PhD. So I was automatically like, uh, like, like had all my funding kind of like, well, my funding never materialized in the first place. So I had to, to drop out. Uh, and you know, 
that I had created, I had all this work that I'd made and then didn't really know what to do with it next. Uh, and I turned part of it into a documentary, uh, uh, kind of essay film called uh, All Renditions on a Broken Machine. Uh, and and this thing here, this, this, this episode was another attempt of me to kind of talk about some of those same things. But uh, this time around, uh, I, I was trying to take what was essentially like an essay that I'd written and reskin it within a kind of like a dramatic scene. Uh, and I was interested in that because, I don't know, I was just curious to see what happens when you take an essay and you give it to a fictional character to read. Because um, when I was working within academia, I have to always present myself as this kind of all-knowing kind of like persona. I am this kind of like godlike creature who is kind of just like explaining how things are. And I'm not necessarily allowed to grow as a character over the course of my, uh, of my essay. You know, I, at the start of the essay, I have to say, listen, I'm about to tell you how this happens and I'm going to break it down. I'm going to do it this way. Then I go ahead and I do it. And then at the end, I tell you that I've done it. Whereas I just kind of wanted to have an opportunity to do something that allowed to put me into my own argument and to allow the sort of like the narrator of this essay to learn stuff about himself along the way the same way we would like give like a character arc to a to a person you know i'll, I'll be allowed to make mistakes i'll be allowed to let personal prejudices influence my my argument i'll be allowed sort of like three quarters of the way through to suddenly realize what the the thing i was talking about was really about and that's stuff that like i'm not allowed to do as an essay writer i well, I'm not allowed to do it as an academic essay writer. I think perhaps within the world of the wider world of narrative nonfiction, one is allowed to to do that a little bit. One one can sort of like craft a kind of journey, but um, but yeah. So that that's essentially where the the like the the nuts and bolts of it all came about was just like yeah, trying to find a way to almost embed an essay within a uh, uh, a dramatic scene. The idea of it being a guy talking to a robot, I guess that just, that, that kind of makes sense. And it's sort of loosely also inspired by the fact that I also occasionally did dramaturg work. So I've spent a lot of time getting brought in at the early points in theatre shows to work with a, uh, like a, perhaps like a, uh, a younger uh, theatre maker who's working on perhaps maybe like their first solo show. And I sort of come into the space for one day to sort of like listen to the show and to sort of like offer usually pretty unhelpful uh, advice. Uh, so there's a, slight, there's a slight aspect of it being a little bit like that aspect of my jobs as well. Uh, but yeah, and then from that, uh, I, I, I kind of just got this idea of sort of trying to get my head around this, this, this link between stand-up and poetry and, uh, uh, and the structure itself is just my kind of go-to structure that I work in, I think, because I, even like before this, I've done lots of stuff that works in, in loops. Mm. And, uh, uh, and, and, and this piece is basically like the same looping structure. There's three iterations of the stand-ups routine you get. And like, like, like a, like the three point joke structure you get, uh, uh, one version where you just get to hear 
the uh, the stand ups routine, just 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 the, the template. Then you get to hear it again, so we get to like uh, reinforce the like the the the, the structure uh, and that which second bits, version. Which bits are the uh the re- the repeating bits and which bits are variables yes yeah you, by the time you've got to the end of the second loop you'll have a good idea of like a little bit more of like how this program is working yeah like yeah exactly where the template ends and where the bits are that it's basically just like reaching into a random i, I mean corpus i call it a clown bucket clown bucket in, i wondered yeah. how you came up with that that term i wanted to because i think that's one of the things that i think works it would be very easy for you to have written that piece. Just, I was coming from it at it from a writing perspective. It'd be very easy for you to have called that a database. Yeah. But you ch- you reached for a specific term. You called it the clown bucket, which simultaneously is funny, but like makes it seem more. It ironically in is is a great example of like like why is clown bucket funnier than database? <laughs> like if we're gonna get get down to what's funny, why is yeah. clown bucket funnier than database? I think it's definitely like, like, particularly if it's like rushed out in the middle of a sentence and it's not kind of like left at the end, like a sort of like a like like a punchline. It is just one of those lines where you, you got to hear it a couple of times. Where, oh, no, he did say clown bucket. Right. I mean, I called it clown bucket because I'm kind of obsessed with the ways that clowns in circuses uh, um decide which member of the front row of a circus they're going to throw a bucket of glitter over. <laughs> so <laughs> a very, very quick side point, you know, like clowns often talk to the, the crowd as they're coming in. They go, hello, how you doing? You know, like they're just trying. And what they're really doing there is they're trying to evaluate who's fair game and who's going to get upset if they fuck with them. Uh, and I just, so I love this idea that like the clowns, are deciding amongst them that there's going to be someone in that front row that's going to get a bucket of glitter thrown over them at like some point. And they're just trying to assert in a sort of, uh, in a kind of holistic way, who's the the best person for that to be. So I like the clown bucket. It's just like, it's just, it's all the glitter. It's just all this kind of stuff, but there's still within, even within the context of the, uh, the, the circus, there's still an idea of like some kind of like intuitive system about like, where this 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 bucket of glitter is going to end up uh so yeah that's that's, that's, where, that's where it comes I, from I, so i'm really what is what's kind of fascinating that i i guess we all find like ways of glomming onto a piece and i think the most disturbing thing about this piece and this is a piece of narcissism <laughs> but i was just like this sounds like the kind of stand-up routine that i would write <laughs> like without without the important essential framing narrative of i am a robot this is intended to sound awkward and wooden there was a period where i was writing monologues for opening uh the nights that i do at norwich art center and i would i'd never really done stand-up before and it showed because i would write like I'd write, I'd write like a 25 to half an hour, 25 minutes to half an hour, like bit of just me monologuing. And I would just do it at the audience and it never went down very well at all. It was dreadful. It was such a, I, I learned a lot, I think about just being in front of an audience, but I'd never, ever do that now. Mm. And a lot of the stuff was very, 
was just kind of like language is odd, isn't it? Like I had I, I had a whole <laughs> section where I was just going, well, give a man a fish and he can eat for a day. What well, give a man a fish? What well, give the singer songwriter Amy Mann a, a fish? And. And, and not in any way, I, you know, not in any way. You can, there's things that you can say that aren't funny, but you give it to the right clown, you give it to the right persona and they can sell it. There was no, there was, there was no force behind it. There was no fair wind in those sales. Like it was as bad a read of it as you can possibly imagine. But I, I don't know what I was thinking, except that exactly what you've been saying about observations about poetry and language that sometimes what we say is not strictly speaking true sometimes homonyms exist mm. homophones exist sometimes a word or a, a phrase can be polyvalenced that's yeah. weird and confusing isn't it <laughs> and and i i'm not even sure if i found it that funny myself except that I just had a, a sense that what pe people did on stage as stand-ups was poke holes in the social contract and sort of grab the angle poise lamp of our attention and kind of twist it back round to the assumptions that we use to make sense of the world and the various cultural smoothing techniques. See, because that's what I find most one of the things i enjoyed most in this piece is where in the same monotone voice the stand-up is forced to use uh mon what they call in sociolinguistics like monitoring phrases like mm. no you're all right you're all right <laughs> um things that are ha they're, they're 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 they don't have any particular meaning when they're used as utterances except as managing embarrassment and smoothing over a yeah. gap um they 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 adjust status between the person on stage and the person they've talked to they stop um a conflict turning into a threat by they're kind of meant and they're kind of not you know like the clown bucket itself mm. which is the joke of the clown bucket is it's a threat I'm going to throw water over you. Oh mm. no, it was mm -hmm. actually glitter. Yeah. These phrases suddenly become weird when they're stripped of inflection and yeah. they they're kind of wonderful and we 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 hear no you're all right, you're all right. For the first time we <laughs> we we actually pay attention to that because it has exactly the same cadence and tone is given as much as importance as the joke and that kind of flattening of effect. That's why I found, find so much of it really interesting and why I feel like I engage with the repetition and the the cognitive estrangement of social norms in, in your work and in this piece in particular. I, I like something in my brain just goes, oh, yeah, like this explains it for the first time to me. Mm. I wonder, does that connect at all? Because I'm just sort of thinking in general about how comedians themselves use that flattening effect. And, you know, one of the most famous examples is... Um, the comedian Jack D, uh, who, you know, like was delivering all his material for, uh, you know, like night after night in a kind of much more of a pally uh, kind of like I'm your mate kind of audience kind of like, oh, what's up with that kind of stuff. And then 
gets finds out before his final show that he's lost his job and that he's not going to get invited back goes on does his material in a complete deadpan and has them rolling in the aisles as a result of that and it is almost like to a certain degree i don't know like like the, the, there are some aspects of artifice where like we we kind of need to have the artifice exposed by like by like thinning out the material in some way or at least it helps us kind of like see it for the as you say it's like see it for the first time when it has some of the the, the inflection removed from it i don't know i i think the repetition helps uh us see it just because we are returned to the same details over and over again and it, it you we're invited i think like a, a a lot of the pieces you do we're invited into the process of writing you're seeing mm -hmm. the kind of we're backstage seeing the creation of a set and it is also the kind of set i would do tim i should say like i think like the absolutely these are like what i believe to be the archetypal sort of like joke shapes that I would go for. Just to go quickly through, yeah. I can quickly list, I think there's six in the, in, in the material. There's one, which is like an intro spiel, um, which it, it, where they explain they're a robot. And I, I would call that lamp shading. I think they're trying to essentially just like, like make a joke out of, or draw attention to the strangeness of it as a way of trying to like cancel out any uh, like thoughts that are, that the audience might be having. And of course, all comedians do versions of this where they come on stage and immediately make yeah. a joke about their own appearance because they, they right, and so they'll, they'll come out and they'll be like, uh, oh, like, I know what you're thinking. Uh, Cormorant Strike is homeless. I don't know. Like, uh, uh, like they, they'll, they'll have some kind of like thing where they'll, they'll try, I'm trying to get out in front of your immediate negative opinions of me. So I'd say that's one that's like lampshading. Then there's like, there's always like a, the second one is always like a hominem. So that the robot's kind of like doing like a play on words. will lead you down the alley of going like, does everybody like X? And then everyone goes, yes. And then it turns out that the robot means a different version of X, you know, like, so it's, it's shopping in the first loop. Go, Do you like shopping? It's like, I like shopping people to the police. For an AI is a, a bit, a bit too yeah, soon, I, I, I think, for, uh, for an AI to be I, talking I really about like that. that. I'll, we'll, we'll loop back to these in a minute, but I'm immediately like laughing and having a really good time. Like it's my kind of joke. <laughs> um, uh, I think the third one is like a whimsical riff on an observation about people loving inanimate objects, uh, um, um, which, of course, I think is where AIs in real life excel the most. I, I remember reading a study about like the closest we've ever come to passing the Turing test. It wasn't the full Turing test. It's like a limited thing. I think it's called a Lieb, Lieb something. I can't remember. The, 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 yeah, so there's basically like a, like a, a simpler version and the, 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 the most amount of robots that have passed it have basically passed it by emulating a kind of like slightly hostile, null fielding-esque dickhead. I think that's the, that's the kind of... Uh, and then after number four... Uh, the the robot says people ask me what's your secret then just gives a completely mad libbed response so that is that like 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 like, like people because yeah we'll, we'll come back to this because i really want to talk about the what these are violations of i think it's really wicked, interesting wicked. Yeah. uh and then there's uh number five it's just a random piece of trivia where they say what's up with that at the end uh and then and then finally there's a little bit of crowd work where they ask 
an audience member what their job is and then insult it no matter what it is. Uh, and, and yeah, and that's <laughs> that. Those are like the, the like the like the joke structures and particularly that last one, that crowd work one, is something that like when I first saw comedians doing crowd work, I was just like, holy fuck, this is incredible. I I, I was really blown away just because I am someone so scared of being on stage without a script and seeing like a comedian just like wade into the audience and be kind of like ask a question here ask a question there and then be doing like callbacks to various people i stand up compares i thought were just so tremendous at that but then it is one of those things that like the more that you see it the, the more it, you, the more opportunities you have to see the, the same guy do this, this, his same version of that material, the more you begin to understand the kind of like the method behind it. And uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so yeah, anyway, those are the six jokes. So I, I was going to say the, the, the I, have you come across um, the uh, linguist H. P. Grice, who proposed that his four conversational maxims which were the four things that we're assumed to be using uh, whenever we have it, whenever we talk to someone. And there's like some, you know, some people would say some of these are culturally bound, but so his four conversational maxims are um, uh, the maxim of quantity, which is that when you say something to someone, reply to a question, for example, you, the information you give is adequate, but not overly informative. Okay. So that the classic one would be, how are you? Um, we mm. understand that there's an implied thing where you do not, it would be overly informative to give a very deep, like lengthy answer. You kind of go, fine, mm. yeah, having a nice day, you know, whatever. Um, the second yeah. one is the maximum of quality. So you don't say something that you'd know to be uh, false or that you've got adequate evidence for. Um, the next one is the maximum of uh, re relevance. So you the, the your answer is relevant to the question. And the final one is the maximum of manner, which is it's got to be clear, unambiguous, brief and orderly. So I think that one, the, a great example with the, um, I, do you want to know my secret, right? The, the implication is that it's using um, the secret that is, is being talked about is my secret to being uh, funny on stage or confident, right? That That's the implication of, you know, go, hey, what's your mm -hmm. secret, right? And then the joke is, and I know everyone gets this, right? I, I'm not claiming that anyone who understands what the joke is. But then the secret <laughs> is a, a dark revelation about the, about the AI's past, which is yeah. another, like, so, so it's a, this is a, this is a, 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 this is breaking the kind of maxim of relevance. And the other, per, the other theorist who this applies to is a guy called Irving Goffman who talked about frame analysis, saying that the way we make sense of the world, he wrote in the 1970s, is that we apply uh, analytical frames to everything. And so when you're in a comedy club, you assume like it's normal and you have a context for why someone is on stage, a stranger is on stage telling you anecdotes, many of which may mm. be false. Uh, like we go, ah, but there's, there are traditions that go into this. This is why this is socially acceptable. We have an understanding of why this person might be insulting these people it's to, it's for the greater good of entertaining us right right of course if i came downstairs in the middle of the night and there was just a, 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 a naked old man in my front room and he started doing the same material to me i wouldn't be like well this is amusing yeah and the ai is 
that kind of midpoint between a naked old man and a comedy <laughs> club, right? Where it's stripped away and, and we just get to hear sort of like one audio track. We just, you pick one thing out and you change the relational frame of it. And we're invited mm. variously to see this as initially like a comedy routine by an AI, but then as a, the kind of like last failed project of a man who's having a breakdown. Yeah. And then as a poem, I like the, uh, the kind of, and I think that, that as well as the content shifting, the relational yeah. frame that you're encouraging the audience to bring to what we're seeing changes with each one. And that's why I often, you know, like I said before, I often think of genre as a pair of spectacles rather than a label. It's, it's a way we look at stuff in the way that watching like a children's TV show and see you like with Scooby-Doo, right? The Scooby-Doo episode you go, what if we don't take this as a children's TV show? What if we take this as a serious sort of Bildungsroman coming of age yeah. story? Uh, uh, and, and take it very literally, then it, it becomes terrifying. No one, why, uh, why is there this, why is the dog talking? The dog can speak English. <laughs> like that within the, we have a, we have an analytical frame within children's cartoons that is normal and it's part of, so there is a story because it's entertaining. We don't have that in a building's Roman and it becomes uncanny and terrifying. And so the genre is not inherent. It's, it's handed down by tradition and cultural context, but actually um, mm. it's something we bring to it. And I think that's what th this piece is encouraging us to do is look at the same thing through new eyes and it becomes odd or strange or uh, or kind of poignant. Tim, can you think of, because I'm always fascinated with this idea of like, I do always think that some of the most interesting artworks are always things that camp out on the border between two different genres. And I think that idea of having stories where like acts one and two are in one genre and then the third act kind of like passes over some kind of like membrane to make us like reimagine it in a different in a different genre. But I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to actually think of examples of stories that do this. I know traditionally it doesn't happen very often in say cinema because it poses problems to like how that material is marketed uh i, I guess from dusk till dawn is a I, yeah, good example of a, yeah of something that starts off like presenting itself as a kind of tarantino-esque crime thriller and then just switches uh quite late on it's pretty late in the story but it finally i think maybe over the halfway point where it suddenly uh, turns into a, a like a vampire story uh and I'm trying to think of other examples. I, I kind of think um, the, the Kill List, the, the the British crime film, similar. Um, I would say there is a there's a movie, um, not the one that became famous, that's based on the Ted Chang short story, but there's a movie called The Signal that mm. I think I've talked to you about before. Um, it's an experimental kind of horror movie, and it was it was made by three directors. And it's done in an exquisite corpse style. So the first act was done by one director and then handed over to the second, who then continued it and then handed over to a, to a third. Um, and so it's called like right. horror comedy, but I, it wasn't <laughs> written as horror comedy. It was written, the first act is straight mm. up horror. 
The second act is suburb is 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 domestic comedy, black black farce, and then the third act is action movie, and it's <laughs> very disturbing because it starts off with like a signal that is being released through all broadcast mediums that is turning people into zombies, and then the second part is. A couple are hosting a house party in the middle of this happening, and things start to go wrong, and it's really weird and upsetting. <laughs> and then the third part is like that story continuing, um, but with this kind of a- apocalypse breaking out around people, and it's it becomes like all of the things sort of the funny bits of funnier because it's got this incredibly dark background to it but also the horror bits feel you're much more invested in characters who because you you've opened your heart a bit to the reality of the movie because there's been silly bits and you go oh Mm. laughing i can do laughing that feels safe so i'm gonna laugh away and then it's like horrible again and you're like oh no what why but i'm already believing this in the in the reality of this movie so i think that that frame shifting in that film definitely feels it's it's kind of very simple in lots of ways, but um, mm. oh yeah, it's very it's kind of very disturbing, and it kind of stayed with me a long time after I watched it. That's cool, man. I'm gonna check that out. I actually, I think I weirdly I saw a trailer for it this week because I b- bought a Blu-ray of Lost Highway, and I think I think it was on the uh, on, on 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 the opening reel of that. I, I'd, I'd argue Mad Max Three Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, has. And I don't think it's a deliberate. I don't think it's a deliberate artistic <laughs> choice. I think Sometimes it just happens. It yeah. just shifts. But there is a there is a moment actually in. I, I'd say the movie has just like this kind of like brutal, low dialogue feel, until the moment in the Thunderdome where he knocks off uh, Blaster's helmet. Uh, and and then like it, there becomes a kind of quite sentimental movie. There are like kids there's like some of the characters completely sort of change master sort of changes personality it becomes like it, it becomes a much a, a very a radically different movie like i would call that more um yeah. mood whiplash than yeah, genre yeah. changing but uh it's it's very odd like I, I like it a lot i enjoy that kind of thing so like Tim, because like we sort of discussed, like this, uh, this this story is something that can, like is moving between slightly more like essay tones in places, and other places it's kind of more uh, dramatic, I suppose. Um, you're someone who writes both in fiction and non-fiction, and I, those are maybe like the two pillars with which you're currently like oscillating sort of between. You've got two fantastic novels, uh, and now. Uh, uh, the two I... pillars that I'm chained Samson like <laughs> to in the temple, which is still casting myself as like a fallen, blinded giant of biblical legend. So even though I was trying, that's more like a humble brag than truly self-deprecating, <laughs> isn't it? And uh, you've got a new book coming out in May uh, about anxiety. Uh, and I know that you're kind of like researching like a new uh, 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 non-fiction book. You've probably had years where it's Tim, the non-fiction writer, and you've had years where it's Tim, the fiction writer. But I guess I'm, I'm curious to know, like, just how different your process is on both these these different types of projects and where and also where the crossover is as well. I, 
I think when you look back at stuff, you can all you always start slicing it in a way where you're looking in in the same as this kind of repetition within this piece. You're looking for commonalities. You're looking for structures. You're looking for things that you do uh, over and over again. And one of the things that I I'm I'm just I, I I get obsessed on topics and I want to return to them again and again to understand them and I want to repeat them. And I think that love of research. But I'd say love might be putting it too. Uh, it might be putting it too ambivalently. No, I mean non-ambivalently. I think it's more ambivalent than love. I think it's an obsession where there's a topic and I have to understand it and I have to go back. And and it's what I see in this piece and a lot of your work is is going back to something again and again, almost compulsively, to try and. Yeah. return to the scene of the crime and understand it and it's like only if I can loop back and, and with my work what I find in fiction non-fiction again is this desperation to understand the specifics of something and to swap words in and out that's what I really I, I get very caught up to the point of not being able to write on how a sentence should look and what the right word is for the for the for the sentence that crunchy specificity is the thing I always talk about, um, and, and, and so the idea of if I'm doing a a joke, like a a simile, just a good simile can be a joke, can't it? Like if you if you, then what is the what is the reference? I wanted to say in the latest book I'm writing. Like sometimes I feel like as useless and unwelcome as, and um, you know sometimes I, I I find some of the things I say as useless and unwelcome and inappropriate as, and 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 then that's like an open goal that you can put a lot of things into, and you have to think what is the specific reference that I want to make, that is going to be surprising to people, is going to feel appropriate. To the, but is, is going to be tonally correct in in coward the book i just did there's a, a bit where i there was one that i i wanted to get for ages where it's like do you have a anxiety disorder if you feel anxious um in a world where all these disasters are happening while politicians look on with the gormless indifference of an anime body pillow during a hammer murder. And like, that's just, that was, that was just like some, someone looking on and not, and, and, and being sort of affable, but not doing anything. And I knew pillow, like Harry Hill once had like a line in one of his commentaries on, uh, on, um, on Derek Akora, where there was a psychic on the programme and he said, and a woman introduced it as my son, and he said, it just cut back to Harry Hill, he said, that's not a son, that's a pillow with a face drawn on it. And I was like, yeah, pillow is a really funny thing to call someone because they don't do anything. I know it sounds silly now I'm explaining it, but just like, for me, those, and you've done this in your moon episode as well with similes, like, it, uh, when you just have to say, here's an object and now I have to go as far in terms of the lexical field from what it is to what it's not. I spoke to a neuroscientist actually um, called Adam Green 
on my podcast and he talked about one of the definitions, the working definitions they have of creativity is lexical distance between concepts that you're able to um, suggest some relationship between. Like, and so that basically if you can get uh, a, a sort of a dog biscuit and Christ and somehow find out ways in which they're similar or whatever, then 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 that's part of creativity is make forming those connections and for me that's that's what you know that's what is a constant throughout my yeah. fiction and non-fiction and poetry is like finding two things that are not the same and finding out what links them and it is kind of a an ahabian white whale it's kind of like the kind of like philosopher's stone the kind of alchemist's quest for transmuting base metals into gold, because what it all comes down to is I want to find like the gut, the grand unified theory that pulls everything together. I want to find the one model. I want to find the model for reality that I can use to understand it. And I think personally, I've, I've had a lot of time to think about this for us. And I think this obsession with like, why I love like repetition in stuff, why I love stuff that builds structures into things, why I love stuff that takes multiple runs at something and slots different uh, variables into, why I love building bots, why I've like made yeah. a bot on online that creates different magical, uh, uh, different wizards in a, a wizarding school and makes up spells for them and stuff. The, the, I, I think I care about that a lot Partly because, like, I recently had a diagnosis of of, of autism at forty, and 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 the key things, uh, and, and you know, I I I don't use that as my whole identity, um, but some of the key sort of traits of that are, um, uh, uh, like hyper focus on a restricted range of interests, repeating those things over and over, mm. and a kind of es estrangement from intuitively grasping social rules right and and for me like stand up and i was like i i said this i was like but i do stand up i do performance pressure i get in front of an audience of 50 people like that's a social situation it's like wait but like you're in a black box space and then you repeat the same words night, night after, after night, after night, yeah. after night and you iterate it and you work out oh this went down well and I don't know why, but I'm going to continue saying it. And after, and this didn't go down well, so I'll, I'll switch that out. And I get to have a 50 minute one-sided conversation, by the way. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm not talking to these people. I'm talking at these people. I'm monologuing at them. Another thing that, that comes up again and again. And, and, and for me, being in a performance space and doing the process that, you do in the bit which is really what i do in my head when i'm working out a show or a stand-up set it's like going i'm faking being a person with spontaneity who's kind of like mr dinner party guy the kind of uh sort of raconteur hey let me tell you how are you doing folks let me tell you about something and then underneath yeah. that synthetic yeah. kind of like layer yeah. 
is just programming. It is completely yeah. algorithm. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, there's, there's man. No, there's nothing but artifice. And I think that's what happens at the end of this piece, you know, where you know it keeps coming back to the robot saying, like, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? And then I say, like, in the end, I don't know anymore. I think part of that is, you know, I don't know if, even know if I realized this when I was originally writing this, but it is me going, oh, the way that I write, me creating these structures, like, like this is me roboting myself. You know, like, like, like I am actually automating my part of this process as well. And, you know, like I can look at another robot and go like, you don't know what you're doing. It's just like, I'm doing exactly the same fucking thing. You know, like I am creating very, very tight linguistic structures for me to improvise inside. And, and that in some way is the, the place I have to go to, to have the confidence to be able to work in, in, in the first place. I think I got into the idea of working in this way, in this looping way. Uh, I, I mean, it became a lot more conscious during the process of working on a podcast, partly because I was aware that I was telling stories in a medium where I only ever had maybe half of the listener's attention. You know, I was aware that like people are listening to podcasts whilst they're doing something else. So I got obsessed into my head, this idea that I am making ambient storytelling. And I don't think I ever quite knew what that sentence meant, but I was something that I was always very, very, very conscious of and trying to work out what I meant by that has been a sort of like an ongoing process. Um, but I do know that that definitely pushed me towards this idea of, I will loop on the idea that like, occasionally I will lose an audience, but the bus, it just goes around in a loop. So if you, if you, if you miss the first bus, don't worry, it's going to come back around. It's going to pick you up again. And then you're going to be back in the flow. And, and in fact, that, that kind of modulated way of working meant I'm telling much more smaller contained stories, which I can, can stretch over a long period of time, but I'm not creating work in a medium where there could possibly be a very significant line of information that if you missed it, the rest of the story becomes yeah. completely opaque. And I think that was my big worry. That, that like that stories that twist and turn in that sense, uh, I can't, I, I didn't feel like necessarily like I could do. And it was one of the things that really drew me towards a show like Night Vale, because I think they are so excellent. In fact, to compare Night Vale, I, I wrote down here in terms of uh, um, ambience, there was a bit where, uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, I took a little line from Brian Eno's manifesto on, uh, on ambient music. And he said, uh, whereas conventional background music is produced by stripping away all doubt and uncertainty from the music, ambient music retains these qualities. And this idea that creating something which is in some ways kind of like simpler or exists in the background does not necessarily mean that you need to kind of like erase the ambiguity or the shading. The mood doesn't have to be reduced. You can still create something that is very, very rich in mood, even if the actual sort of like... Uh, the, the, the plot content is kind of like, is kind of brought brought down. And I think that is something that I think uh, Night Vale does so incredibly well in that it is such this rich linguistic tapestry of mysteries that just kind of just like bloom into other mysteries, into other mysteries. And so it creates this lovely texture where I feel like I can tune in and out of it and I can just like, like dig the sort of like the feeling of it, even though like I'm, not expecting it to ever resolve you know like it, it like I, I can kind of just like live in that kind of like in, in that kind of moment a little bit um so yeah i definitely got more interested in looping 
with, uh, with 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 podcasting. But um, uh, but I think I've always been interested in it. Actually, ever since this work that you and I did with um, the Ulapug. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether we, we should briefly talk about that, seeing as you and I and uh, the writer Joe Dunthorne made a, a theatre show uh, about this French uh, avant-garde writing group called uh, the Oulipo, uh which people thought we'd invented. I don't know if you remember that, like, like when we did our first few shows. They thought, they thought that the Oulipo were a, a kind of gag that we'd, we'd come up with. done, yeah. which I, I kind of think that Ulipo would be delighted yeah, by. Yeah, completely. The idea that there starts people start going, this cannot, they cannot be true. Yeah. <laughs> Where like counter myths start growing up about them. That is because, of course, the whole uh, I, I forget who the guy was who uh, the Da Vinci Code, the the original book. Mm. Um, it's not called Cathar Blood, but it's called something like that. Um, that like. Uh, the the original book, like conspiracy theory book that 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 then Dan Brown kind of like borrowed from to fictionalize into the book, mm. um, used a bunch of historical data that was made up by one of the Ulipo, um, uh, as just being a kind of interesting story, and then it's kind of passed into the cultural consciousness, and then there's like a Im- ambiguity in lots of people's mm. minds whether it's real, whether it's fictionalized. But the the the, the Ulipo, I I just think that it, it, cr- turning language into games, creating rules and creating obstacles for oneself that one doesn't have to overcome, and then overcoming them for kind of like entertainment and as a way of as the the, the enjoyment of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's fairly low stakes as well, I, I think is is something that a lot of people... I don't, I don't think there's any... Uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of the uh, Ulipo are also really into chess. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that that kind of doing something arbitrary <laughs> and... Uh, but in a way, pointing out that everything that we do... Uh, yeah, is, is, is arbitrary. And we can invest things with kind of beauty and meaning in the same way that in life uh, a user's manual Barthel Booth this eccentric uh, rich guy is continually making uh, and destroying puzzles of his own uh, his own work and, and and then having them destroyed it, it, it's mm. the beauty of it is in the kind of utility of it and I think they're supposed to be these not nihilistic views of of, of human existence but the kind of like Beautiful, like a kind of uh, this. This is not a great reference, but like in the same way that in Rick and Morty, like human existence is bait is essentially pointless. But because of that, the center of the universe can be kind of anywhere, and that uh, what we choose to love and value is as beautiful and as valuable and as precious as anything yeah. else. I, I might be like reading a lot into <laughs> Rick and Morty, but I kind of feel like there's a heart yeah. at, at the center of it. I feel like that's at the same with the Ulipo that like the, the, the great structures of power are not necessarily more important than someone sat around a table with someone else uh, making uh, a sort of some shapes on the table out of porridge oats. Yeah. <laughs> Those two activities are no more valuable or un- invaluable. And by pointing out the absurdities and the estrangements in how we interact with each other, um, the, yeah. the the ultimate thing you get at is this feeling of 
this touching on the miraculous, which I feel like at the end of your piece, like I don't want to over read it, but like this feeling at the end that it is a grandpa's seen too much, I think is the name you, you get give to the final voice. <laughs> to the voice. But this feeling of this kind of like profound weirdness of being alive, I think is, that's a magical thing to give to an audience. Just get them aware of the weirdness of, just for a moment, we just kind of, you know, you've talked about it as the naked lunch moment. You kind of see what the thing on the end of your fork. Mm. And that can that can be used for horror, but I think it can also just be used for the mixture of horror and inspiration that the philosophers call an encounter with the sublime or mm. awe. You know, when, when the great tidal wave is about to crash down on you, you feel awe and it's a mixture of anxiety and wonder. And I feel I feel like you've there's a little bit of this that in this piece, the end, there's a feeling of awe. It's like a feeling of horror, but also a feeling of wonder. Poetry and comedy both spend a lot of time skirting around the big thing. You know, I've heard people talk about it like it's a bubble. You know, we're saying we're, we're, we're moving around the bubble and we're not saying the thing in the center because if you're trying to grab it, mm. you burst the bubble when the whole work falls apart. But I will say my most transcendent moments of both poetry and comedy is when partly the artifice drops and they say the the dark thought at the center of it all <laughs> and we just get that 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 chill i think when actually language collapses into that kind of very plain spoken kind of like dark truth and i think you know like i like yeah i, I love those moments I have, a, I have a quote from Osip Mandelstam here, Ross, from um, A Journey to Armenia. Because um, you were talking about saying phrases wrong and tr the translation of poetry. And he, when he's talking about his translation of, in, from his conversation about Dante, and he's talking about translating mm. it, he talks about the, like, one of the fundamentals of poetry for him is that something that isn't, like, he, he says, um, he's talking about something and he says, while the other taken apart from its instrumental metamorphosis is devoid of all significance and all interest and is subject to paraphrase, which in my opinion is the truest sign of the absence of poetry. For where one <laughs> finds commensurability with paraphrase, there the sheets have not been rumpled, there poetry has not, so to speak, spent the night. So for him, <laughs> if you can, he talks about poetry being like a command instantly understood and obeyed and then forgotten and that if you can if you can summarize something that summary is not poetry it doesn't mean you can't you can't, basically you cannot summarize a poem you can only experience the poem yeah you can only repeat it and yeah. i think because the words you choose matter and the order that they're in matters and I, you know, I got into an argument with um, uh, a guy who translates from cuneiform for the British Library about this because he was saying, "No, of course you can translate poems, and and there is there is a central thing, that, you know, there is a central core to poems." And I kind of agree with him too. I just think it's an interesting pro provocation. Clearly, we can talk yeah. to each other. We don't want to get into a reductio ad absurdum where we say, "No human being can talk to each other." But that's the interesting thing about your point is like, I don't think that this ends with poems. Like 
in the end, you can take it to a kind of radical scepticism of language where we all have our own slight variations, our own clusters on what a word means. And we're all engaged person to person in acts of translation. And I think that's what I think that is the that's the lovely bit, right? That's the like the dark knowledge that people are being sort of like tempted towards here. Uh, and I and then I think you get into a place where, OK, so relative value is still value, but we there's no there's no one model that we can understand. And, and for me, poetry and stand up are. You had to be there is, is what I think is my kind of basis of poetry and a joke. Like you have yeah. to, the frame matters in the kind of Goffman sense that um, the people matter in the room. You know, the, the futility of the kind of Ross char- self-insert character in this piece is he's trying to create a generic bot that can handle any situation, any audience, any content and can uh, be kind of like the omni stand-up. And in doing so, it's robbed of spontaneity. It's robbed of human warmth. It's robbed of the ability to, he sort of starts, he's he's very keen. It doesn't make mistakes. Um, uh, And those, and that becomes sort of, and eventually until it's, he creates a shell. He creates this empty, lich-like character (laughs) who, is just the echoing shell where a hu- because he makes it infallible um because it it doesn't doesn't take a run at anything it doesn't make mistakes it doesn't create uh a, yeah. a feelings of embarrassment I mean, in the room i mean he literally feeds its own text back into it you know like it kind of it does create like a closed loop out of its own program so it's only referencing itself and and and, and then and 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 wipes yeah, he, he he kind of wipes it. I find that moment chilling where he kind of like deletes the contents of the clown bucket. I I, it, I feel it feel it feels a bit like a kind of murder, and I I, I love that. Um, but it's it, it, the there's something kind of sterile. <laughs> it's just like a kind of like piece of polished jet reflecting the audience's <laughs> sort of like horrified stares back at themselves and uh, and I love that and I think it's I, I think it ends up being a kind of quite positive message about um how so much of what's funny and poetic is about error oh man I nailed the landing on that finishing thought Ross I'm happy with that <laughs> I, that sounded so profound, I, <laughs> which of course I do not make errors. Though, however, having just flawlessly landed that conclusion, is is just like yeah. Which you know, it's all right for other people to make those. They, it makes them kind of cute and relatable. Not me. I, <laughs> the... Thanks again to Tim Clare again. Tim's new book, Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It, is available for immediate purchase. Uh, also to hear the rest of this ongoing imaginary reprise series, the rest of the episodes, go to patreon.com forward slash Ross 
G. Sutherland. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care.